hppodcraft.com. This week's episode of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast has been brought to you by Miskatonic Books. Miskatonic Books carries a large collection of mythos-related titles from the genre's best authors and publishers, both past and present. Notable titles now on sale include The Ghost of Fear and Others, HP Lovecraft's favorite horror stories, as well as Medusa's Coil and Others, a collection of HPL's revisions. Miskatonic carries all the classic writers in the weird fiction genre, including HP Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Arthur Mackin, Robert Block, and many others. And don't forget, Miskatonic is always looking to buy, sell, and trade mythos-related books and a And right now, until February 15th, Miskatonic Books is offering 10% off for listeners of our show. Just use coupon code HPLP, that's HPLP, and you'll receive 10% off your order. That's good. And I should also mention that Thursday nights are ladies' nights at Miskatonic Books. That's half off all well drinks all night long, plus free popcorn for the first 25 gals through the door. That's last night's popcorn, ladies. Right. Uh, just remember the coupon code, 10% off with the code HPLP, right now at MiskatonicBooks.com. Right now. Hey, listen to this. From Monday to Friday, the New York Public Library presents the Necronomicon. I didn't know the library did rock concerts. It's not a rock group, Winston. It's the single most powerful book of magic spells ever written. H.P. Lovecraft and others wrote a whole series of horror stories based on it. Come on, we gotta see it. I'll bet the copyright page alone has a PKE valence of 9.9. You go ahead, Ray. I've got a date today. And that date is with us at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. You're here at hppodcraft.com. Uh, yeah. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. I'm um, in the new year. Well, actually, I've got a little bit of a cold, so I'm, I'm fighting yeah. it. You might notice there's a, <clears throat> a bit of a, a frog in my throat, but I'm getting by, doing fine, yeah. and it's it's great being a dad. Yeah? You, yeah? you enjoying it? Yeah, it's good. We had a great Christmas uh, here in the UK. How about you? Yeah, it was good. We had fun. Uh, it's just nice having a little time off. Getting away from the Lovecraft for a while, but I am happy to get back here because this is a favorite story of mine. Yeah, mine too. I know a lot of people hate the story and they kind of think of it as a uh, dime store case of Charles Dexter Ward, but I uh, I have to disagree. I think that there's a lot to the story and, uh, well, you know, we should probably just talk about it. Yeah, well, now, usually when we intro the show, we'll play a clip from the actual story that we're covering, but... That clip we played today was from a very special television show from the 80s. Do you know it, Chris? I do know it. It's real Ghostbusters. <laughs> That's right. It's a little weird to hear Fred from Scooby-Doo talking about the Necronomicon. I didn't realize it was Fred from Scooby-Doo, but now that yeah. I hear it without looking at it, it's totally Fred from Scooby-Doo. Yeah, and the dude that read that said he was going on a date, the guy that was Peter Venkman, that's uh, the voice of Garfield. Right. Which is weird that Bill Murray was then the voice of Garfield in the oh, right. movie adaptation thing. Yes. Yeah. Really bizarre. But that episode was called The Collect Call of Cthulhu. And for many folks, it was their first experience with H.P. Lovecraft. A lot of people have written in to tell us that, actually. You saw it when it was on, right? Of course. I saw it when it was on. I've watched that show religiously as a child. Yeah. But I did, had no idea who H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft was. Yeah. So isn't that crazy? Well, yeah. so that episode was written by Michael Reeves. And if you think you don't know Michael's work, you're probably wrong. Uh, this guy is so prolific. For television, he's written for a ton of great shows like Batman, the animated series. He wrote for yeah. Gargoyles. He wrote for the new Twilight Zone, um, Star Trek The Next Generation. Even He-Man, Master of the Universe, he wrote oh, for yeah. that. And um, My Little Pony, for all the bronies <laughs> out there. But that's on top of a number of excellent short stories and novels. He's written plenty of, of books for the Star Wars universe. He's got one, I think, that just came out at the end of last year called Star Wars Shadow Games. Oh, right. Which you can get in stores. Um, he wrote the young adult book Inner World with Neil Gaiman. 
lot, he works with lots of great collaborators. Um, we'll send you to his blog and his Amazon page and our show notes. There's yep. lots of books of his to pick up. But he's had a lifelong interest and in, in sort of love affair with HPL, just like the rest of us. And and he managed to integrate it into the Ghostbusters universe, which is <laughs> pretty great. Uh, since you know who doesn't love Ghostbusters? Exactly, it's awesome. Um, I should also note, if you go to Michael's blog from our show notes, it's called The Parkinson's Monster, and that's because Michael has Parkinson's disease. Yeah, he's been dealing with it for, for a while, and he's pretty far along. We were actually wanted him to be on the show, but his Parkinson's has progressed to the point that he can't actually speak. Right. Um, and his blog talks about his experiences. It's, it's pretty riveting, and obviously Parkinson's hasn't dulled him you know, a bit. He's just as sharp and incisive as ever. Speaking of, we've been corresponding with him for a while trying to get him on the show, and he said he'd love to talk about this story, The Thing on the Doorstep. Which is great, since we love it so much. So he sent us some notes on the story, and I, I think they're a really good way to kick this off. Do it. Okay. <laughs> so here they are. Here's what he wrote. First and foremost, there's the title. Only HPL could even think that something called The Thing on the Doorstep might be remotely frightening to anyone over the age of eight. <laughs> and only HPL could make it so. It sounds like part of a bizarre triptych, the other two being something like The Horror from the Sideboard and The, <laughs> the Madness of the Tea Cozy. It's part of a subgenre of horror which could be called Transylvania in Your Backyard. Richard Matheson is probably the one who really got people to notice it with I Am Legend, which brought the vamps home. Although Shirley Jackson realized the same truth, that real horror lies in ordinary life. Key point here. Most people consider the settings and mechanisms used by Lovecraft pretty esoteric, but take a walking tour of Boston or Providence sometime, and you realize that Arkham, Innsmouth, and Dunwich aren't that far down the road, and you can find some killer real estate values there. <laughs> yes, it is a bit of a fixer-upper, but in a few years you'll really appreciate the extra space that shining trapezohedron can provide. The thing on the doorstep is neither the best nor the worst of Lovecraft. Most critics consider it thunderingly mediocre. It does, however, have one of the most naively optimistic opening lines in the entire Cthulhu Ervoir. It is true that I have sent six bullets through the head of my best friend, and yet I hope to show by this statement that I am not his murderer. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Pretty funny. Great notes from Michael, and, and yeah. we'll be hearing some more from him as, as we go on with the story. But that opening line is great, so why, why don't we just listen to the whole paragraph so we can kind of get into the mood of this thing. Absolutely. How about the first few paragraphs since they set things up so well? It is true that I have sent six bullets through the head of my best friend. And yet I hope to show by this statement that I am not his murderer. At first... I shall be called a madman, madder than the man I shot in his cell at the Arkham Sanitarium. Later, some of my readers will weigh each statement, correlate it with the known facts, and ask themselves how I could have believed otherwise than as I did after facing the evidence of that horror, that thing on the doorstep. Until then, I also saw nothing but madness in the wild tales I've acted on. Even now, I ask myself whether I was misled, or whether I am not mad after all. I do not know. But others have strange things to tell of Edward and Asenith Derby, and even the stolid police are at their wits' end to account for that last terrible visit. They have tried, weakly, to concoct a theory of a ghastly jest or warning by discharged servants. Yet they know in their hearts that the truth is something infinitely more terrible and incredible. So I say that I have not murdered Edward Derby, rather have I avenged him, and in so doing purged the earth of a horror whose survival might have loosed untold terrors on all mankind. There are black zones of shadow close to our daily paths, and now and then some evil soul breaks a passage through. 
When that happens, the man who knows must strike before reckoning the consequences. Man, I, I just really love this story. It, mm-hmm. it, it just because I get an emotional response out of this one, and I don't, I don't feel that a lot with Lovecraft stories. No, it's purely intellectual, and this one really hurts my heart. Yeah, it really does, and a lot of it has to do with the relationship between the main character and Edward Derby. Now, I'm pronouncing it Derby because that's yeah, how I would have pronounced. it. I know, but in in the UK, they pronounce yeah. Derby Darby. Darby, right? Which I had, I didn't know until I moved here. You know, I know that because your wife and I went to the Derby in Los Angeles, and she called it the Darby. <laughs> that's how I know that. But I assume that Lovecraft would have said Darby, probably. Lovecraft, being an Anglophile, probably would have said right. Darby. But then again, he lived in New England, and they said things differently in New England. Yeah. Well, let's stick. Let's pick one Pfeiffer and stick with it. Well, I'm going to say Derby because I'm an American. All right, great. So we're yeah. going Derby. Our protagonist is known, and I think a protagonist is named Dan. Yeah, da- Daniel Upton is his name. The story starts off with a murder at the Arkham Sanitarium, mm-hmm. and the Joker and Mr. Freeze are not involved. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Is that, I totally blew my mind right there. Edward and Dan, our protagonist, both grew up in Arkham. He describes it here as witch-cursed, legend-haunted Arkham whose huddled, sagging gambrel roofs and crumbling Georgian balustrades brood out the centuries beside the darkly muttering Miskatonic, which is such a cool description of the town. They've known each other all their lives. It, it says here, eight years my junior. Edward was so precocious that we had much in common from the time he was eight and I was 16. So it's kind of a, you'll have the elder friend and the younger friend or the more dominant friend and the submissive friend in yeah. Lovecraft's literature a lot. But the relationship is usually based on the terrible truth that they're searching after or the arcane wisdom or, or what have you. Whereas these two guys, they have that relationship when they're young. I think that Edward is kind of the Lovecraft stand well, right? Well, he, he, here's the thing. Joshi talks about this in the Lovecraft Encyclopedia, that he doesn't think that he is actually a Lovecraft stand-in. No. No, because um, he talks so favorably about this character that Lovecraft is kind of uh, too self-deprecating to do something like that and he Mm. thinks that the character is an amalgam of a bunch of friends specifically alfred galpin um, which lovecraft says he is intellectually exactly like me save in degree in degree he is immensely my superior and he talks about um also when he met him the most brilliant accurate steel-cold intellect i have ever encountered but he also talks about um frank belknap long being this genius who's also much younger than him as well Mm. and frank belknap long uh tried to grow a mustache and he had a real puny little mustache which is just like edward in this story yeah where he's got really a boyish face joshi thinks that that edward derby is actually um a combination of of Long and Galpin. Oh, well, yeah, he probably is because, you know, Lovecraft did have these relationships with younger folks. Yeah. Which is very, a very cool thing about him. You know, a lot of people won't talk to other people outside their age groups. And it's such, it's such a human thing to do when you get older to start disregarding younger people. Yeah. You know, and Lovecraft didn't have that tick. You know? No. He thought if somebody was young and interesting, like, what's his name? Robert E. Howard. Yeah. Who, who is, once again, his story, The Black Stone, comes up in here again, as it did in Out of the Eons. Oh, right. Yeah. So I guess Lovecraft's both of these characters. Certainly, Edward shares some biographical things with Well, him. yeah. So Galpin actually had a very common upbringing as well. He was sort of a sheltered youth and didn't get mm-hmm. out much, but spent a lot oh. of time on his own. So that's why Lovecraft really related to him. But And, and I think Joshi makes a good point. It does seem like the narrator of the story seems to really protect and try and take care of Edward. Yeah, Dan really is like an older brother figure to him, and I think that's probably how he liked to see himself to to these guys as well. Wow. As, a, as opposed to looking at uh, the statement of Randolph Carter, where he's kind of a domineering 
dick and makes and makes Randolph do a lot of things and kind of belittles him at points and things like that. Where it seems like it's a much different relationship. And and honestly, one of the few solid relationships in an H.P. Lovecraft story, when bad things happen, you feel it because you care about this relationship that goes on. And typically that doesn't happen. That's exactly right. I think that going back to what I was saying initially, that usually the relationship is based on the acquirement of knowledge. Right. Whereas these two partnered on some things. You know, Dan was going to design a book that Edward had written with his demoniac poems. Yeah. He instead turned to architecture. He never did it. So their relationship is actually a friendship based on just liking each other and not scholastic achievement. Exactly. Which is just not, that's not a Lovecraftian relationship. It's an actual friendship. That to me changes everything. And that's why this story really stands out to me. Yeah, me too. When our main character turned to architecture, young Edward continued in the vein of his writing poetry and his odd stuff. I mean, he's kind of a a Pikmin and then he's got this obsession with, you know, despite the fact that he's really coddled and he has to live with his parents, this is the place where he excels. And he wrote a book called Azathoth and Other Horrors. Yeah. That, that was made a real sensation. And he, it says he was a close correspondent of Justin Joffrey, or Jeffrey, who wrote The People of the Monolith and died screaming in a madhouse in a village in Hungary. And that character is from the Howard story, The Black Star. Ah, I see. From which we also got Von Yuntz and the Anasperklichen cult, in which we'd referenced in our Out of ah, Yes, yes. Well, speaking so, of him being like Pickman, his middle name is Edward Pickman Derby. That, right. <laughs> so somehow they're probably even related, related in, in some yeah. way. Or the, yeah. And and the physical description of Edward was that he's blonde and blue-eyed. He has the, the fresh complexion of a child. He's pudgy. He's pudgy, yeah. yeah. Uh, and his attempts to raise a mustache are discernible only with difficulty, which is just so <laughs> funny, you know. So our main character studied in Harvard. Yeah. Studied in a Boston architect's office, but eventually got married and finally comes back to Arkham, right? Yep. And Edward would often come to visit him. And when he would come to visit, he would give a signature knock, which was three, three knocks and then a pause and then two knocks. So kind of a... Yeah. That was his signature knock. It wasn't shaving a haircut, yeah. but close enough that he knew it was him when he came by. And uh, Edward went to Miskatonic University because his parents didn't really want him to go too far. Although they would take him to Europe, I think, for summer trips and that yeah. sort of thing. They wanted to keep him close to home. And that's where he really became, it says, a fanatical devotee of subterranean magical lore, for which yeah. Miskatonic's library is famous. <laughs> One of the things, too, is Edward, he did really great in school, and he finished university when he was 19 he graduated high school at 16 and went to school finished at 19 and he was really into the bohemian set but he wouldn't get involved or participate he just would kind of watch from afar because his parents wouldn't approve and our main character had a kid yeah when edward was 20 and he named his child edward derby upton after him yeah so again they have this good close brotherly relationship so as the years wear on unfortunately edward's mother dies when he's 34 and that's sort of changes things for for edward he kind of goes away for a while he's kind of suffers they say he suffers a malady and he goes to europe with his dad and he comes back and he is a little bit more footloose and fancy free and he starts hanging out with those people at the university those bohemians and things even though he's older now yeah. He's 34. He's starting to hang out with these college kids and getting down with the, the booze and the drinking and the, you know, whatever. The the magic and the cults is actually what's going on. It's so funny. He's 34, but he's still trying to hide his involvement with those people from his father. <laughs> That's the setup. We know that these guys were friends and that um, Edward's now mixing with these folks and he's got this proclivity for magic. And that gets us into chapter two, where we, we meet a very important character. Edward was 38 when he met Asenith Waite. She was, I judge, about 23 at the time, and was taking a special course in medieval metaphysics at Miskatonic. The daughter of a friend of mine had met her before, 
in the Hall School at Kingsport, and had been inclined to shun her because of her odd reputation. She was dark, smallish, and very good-looking except for her over-protuberant eyes. But something in her expression alienated extremely sensitive people. It was, however, largely her origin and conversation which caused average folk to avoid her. She was one of the Innsmouth Waits, and dark legends have clustered for generations about crumbling, half-deserted Innsmouth and its people. There are tales of horrible bargains about the year 1850 and of a strange element not quite human in the ancient families of the rundown fishing port. Tales such as only old-time Yankees can devise and repeat with proper awesomeness. Over protuberant eyes. Yeah, there's a lot of great uh, Lovecraft. The fact that she's taking medieval metaphysics in Miskatonic. They offer that. Yeah, that they offer. <laughs> That's a course at Miskatonic. Of course it is. But it's so interesting that on top of all of the other strange things we're about to witness happen with this girl and that's the least of it because she's from she's from Innsmouth she's got those eyes yeah. she's going to turn into a fish person at some point yeah she's a wait and yeah. in the Innsmouth that's one of the families the marshes the waits they interbreed with with deep ones she right. well her father obviously we find out here Ephraim is her father right nobody knows anything about her mother don't know what happened to the wife probably because she's a deep one right <laughs> yeah he, he was an old man and he had an unknown, unknown wife who always went veiled so, I mean, here's the thing. If you read this story and you hadn't read Innsmouth, Shadow Over Innsmouth, you might not get this stuff. No. It might just be weird background. And it's enough. That's fine. It just tells you they come from a strange place. I mean, they, they make it pretty clear in the story that they are. Yeah. You know, they have bred with some kind of fish race. But I think that's so great, that, that backdrop. If I was going to recommend somebody who, who had a longer appetite, maybe I'd say read Shadow Over Innsmouth and then read this one after it. You'll get a pretty great experience of Lovecraftian New England stories. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, the thing about Ephraim, they talk about him. Ephraim Waite was a wizard in his own right. Mm -hmm. He knew about magic and, and about all those things, and he would go to the university bunch to, to check out the books, like the Necronomicon and all those things, and right. do some studying and stuff. So people around town, they know what he, they've seen him, and they see him. He's got this uh, Saturnine wolfish face and a tangled iron gray beard. Yeah. He had died insane under rather queer circumstances, they say, right? And they go into a little bit more detail about that later in the story. Right. This is where they talk about Asenath a little bit more, about how she was a known sorceress. Right. She goes to school a little after her dad died. She seems to have posed as a kind of magician, right? Yeah, and she's got these powers of, of hypnosis, and uh, one of my favorite lines here is, she would frighten her schoolmates with leers and winks of an inexplicable kind. It would seem to extract an obscene and zestful irony from her present situation. <laughs> Leers and winks of an inexplicable kind. <laughs> what? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So she would come to school and, and kind of intimidate people. And it was known that she was a great hypnotist and that right. she would often make people feel like they would switch bodies with her. Like they would yeah. see themselves out of her eyes when they would look at her sometimes. And so she had this you know, really crazy reputation. Right, as if you were in her body suddenly and looking at yourself. And then yourself, you would ha your eyes would blaze and protrude with an alien expression. So the suggestion being that you guys switched. Yeah. That would be the that would be a crazy thing to experience if you just kind of turned around in your history class to see who's sitting behind <laughs> you, you know? 
what? But the thing, the thing too about this, I, I feel Lovecraft, of course, is being a little heavy-handed at this point in the story. He doesn't need to drop that at this point. He doesn't. No, that's true. Lovecraft does do that a lot in his stories, but for this particular bit of information, I really feel like he could have sat on this for a little bit longer. Yeah, something else he might have wanted to sit on about this character is when he says her crowning rage was that she was not a man, because she believed the male brain had certain unique and far-reaching cosmic powers. You know, given a man's brain, she could not only equal but surpass her father in the study of unknown forces, which is like, what? (laughs) Well, this particular line has a lot of people think uh, that this was Lovecraft's comment on women being a bit of a sexist. Because Lovecraft was a notorious sexist when he was younger, but as he got older, his attitudes were changing. He had written by the late 1930s when this story was written. He said, I do not regard the rise of women as a bad sign. Rather, do I fancy her traditional subordination with itself an artificial, undesirable condition based on oriental influences. What? The whole idea of women being kind of subjugated in our culture is from from the Orient. And <laughs> it's oh. something. <laughs> is he using racism to? Yes. <laughs> yes. He's blaming sexism on another race. Yes, basically. Oh, yeah. Wow. What Joshi says, again, on this particular statement, it's not what Lovecraft thinks, because a lot of people think that Lovecraft was being sexist when he was writing this. It's what the character is thinking. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's good, because I was thinking that he would have been, like, the worst relationship comic ever. <laughs> the thing that drives me crazy about women is that they have inferior brains. Am I right? Huh? Edward met Azanath at a gathering of intelligentsia held in one of the students' rooms, which I think is... Funny. I just imagine all these people in the dorm room. Yes, this is the intelligentsia. And they he couldn't talk about anything else after he'd met Asnath, right? Yeah. She's just the, the newest, greatest thing to him. And our narrator's pretty smart about it. He doesn't say anything to discourage Edward because it says infatuation thrives on opposition. Yeah. So that was pretty insightful. Yeah. On the part of uh, Lovecraft. So he says, you know, he's not mentioning him to his father right now, but he doesn't discourage him because he's hoping that on his own he'll he'll get over it. But then finally Edward decide, brings him to Dan to meet her. And right. he thought that the relationship was one-sided and that, you know, he just sort of was had infatuation with her. But she seemed to be into him. In fact, uh, Lovecraft writes, she eyed him continually with an almost predatory air. Mm-hmm. And I perceived that their intimacy was beyond untangling. From that, it suggests that she wants him. Maybe in a sexual way, but that's not it, right? No, no, that's not it at all. Well, they don't waste any time. A month later, they get married, right? Yep. They get married by a justice of the peace. And as an eth, she's uh, bought the old crown and shield place in the country, mm-hmm. the end of High Street, so that's where they're going to settle. After a short trip to Innsmouth, where everybody wants to go for their honeymoon, of course. Yeah, and they come back from the honeymoon, and Ed seems pretty uh, changed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the more horrific parts of the story, especially after having read it before and reading that and just mm-hmm. going, oh, my God, what was what happened on his honeymoon? They go down there. They come back. They've got uh, some servants from Innsmouth and some books, and Edward looks sober or more thoughtful and says his pout is gone. Just a little bit of his innocence died. (laughs) Yeah. Exchanged for a look of almost genuine sadness. Oh, God. (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah. So they, uh, the the servants are odd. It's an incredibly aged couple who had been with old Ephraim Mm -hmm. uh, and a swarthy young wench who had marked anomalies of feature and uh, seemed to exude a perpetual odor of fish. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Horrible. Oh, dear. Poor guy. On the plus side, he's progressing fast in esoteric lore because Asenath is guiding him now. Yeah. And we're in the the third chapter at this point. And then we start zipping through time a little bit in the third chapter. 
Edward is less and less seen about Dan's place, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's spending a lot of time with, with Asenath and just learning magic and stuff and exploring ancient things and, and all that stuff. Uh, and people seem to notice that there's a change in Ed. In fact, he's seen driving a car, which is really strange because he doesn't know how to drive or at least didn't know how to drive before they got married. I like how it's described as strange when, in fact, it's just illegal. Like, he doesn't know, <laughs> he doesn't know how to drive a car. But yeah, he'd take off on these trips. He'd go along the Innsmouth Road. That's usually the Innsmouth Road. That's right. I liked to hear it said that um, he was observed to wear an expression and to do things wholly incompatible with his usual flabby nature. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, golly. When he'd take those trips down Innsmouth Road, sometimes he'd come back hours later and he'd be sprawled out in the rear seat of the car while a hired chauffeur or a mechanic would be driving. And they also mentioned that Asenath, her face seemed to age a lot more, while Edward seemed to just kind of be more relaxed. Yeah, I mean, he's it's strange because their ages, he's a lot older than her, but their ages seem to invert. Like, she looks older and he's you know, still, still perpetually kind of yeah. young. And in their third year, Edward would start hinting about fear and dissatisfaction with the relationship to Dan. He'd, he'd make remarks about things going too far and about he needs to save his identity. Which actually does sound like a married couple having troubles. <laughs> I mean, if you don't, I, I'm serious. Like, it's kind yeah. of, there's a, I could see, I mean, later I really can't see it. But at this point, I can see where Dan would say, oh, yeah, maybe she's just really overbearing. And he, having lived under overbearing parents, like, that's his nature. But now as an adult, he's starting to think, hey, man, I, I don't like being told what to do all the time. <laughs> but then, unfortunately, um, Ed, Ed's father passes away. And right. that really upsets him. But he wants to move back to the family mansion, the the Derby house, but Asnath won't have it. And there's a weird thing that happens with Dan's wife at this point, I think. She comes calling. No, no, no. I'm sorry. His wife heard about a thing from a friend who had dropped by, had seen a car shoot out of the drive with Ed Edward, you know, with that oddly confident face driving it. Yeah. They, they said Asnath, she's out as well when yeah. he rang the bell. But when he was passing by the library windows, he saw her. Looking out, but... The look that was in her eyes was the sad and muddled eyes of poor Edward gazing out. So I wonder what happened. (laughs) Again, a little heavy-handed here. Yeah. At this point, Edward is visiting Dan a lot more now, and he's telling him some pretty crazy stuff. Edward's calls now grew a trifle more frequent, and his hints occasionally became concrete. What he said was not to be believed, even in centuried and legend-haunted Arkham. But he threw out his dark lore with a sincerity and convincingness which made one fear for his sanity. He talked about terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins in the heart of the main woods beneath which vast staircases lead down to abysses of nighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous exchanges of personality that permitted explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds, and in different space-time continua. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's some heavy Lovecraft stuff right there. Yeah. You're getting the the good stuff. The other thing that is crazy is that Edward has, he has objects that he's actually showing to Dan that don't make any sense. He says they come from outside and his wife knows how to get them, but they have crazy curves and surfaces. Yeah. No conceivable geometry. He suggests things about old Ephraim Waite and that mm-hmm. um, that he was seen at the library a lot in the old days and that some people wonder if he's really dead. Oh, and, and you know, when he's talking about this stuff to Dan, 
sometimes he suddenly halts in his revelations. Yeah. As if something, something's got a grip over him. Yeah. He has difficulty coming to see Dan. He would, well, he would pretend to Azanath that he was going somewhere else. Yeah. And then he'd be wanting to come over and see Dan, but then he'd forget where he was going or. <laughs> At one point, Ed said um, he would call when she was away in her own body. Which is an odd way to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The servants would always kind of watch him and pay attention, and they would snitch on him if he was doing anything he wasn't supposed to be right. doing. So she was really controlling him, and not just in a in a kind of social way, in a very literal sense of mm-hmm. almost puppeteering or taking over him. So he's living in a, a 1984 police state and right. <laughs> at, at, at the Castle and Shield. I'll tell you this, though, and, and we're running short on time, so we, I was wondering what you thought of this. I mean... I think the reason the story works well is because, yes, she's literally controlling him. We know that because it's a weird fiction story in science fiction. Yeah. But I think it also has some truth about some real horrors in life. And, and maybe there's some mirror here of Lovecraft's real marriage. Yeah. There's, there's uh, some talk of that, too, where uh, some people think that there is a bit of Sonia Green in Azanath. Right. Because she was definitely, um, and all the letters and things, she was the dominant one in their relationship. And, she and kind of, was trying to change him yeah in a, in a way to to give him another personality like he's got to move to new york she wants him to get a job you know those stresses of now that you're married you are you lose some identity and you have to kind of take on the identity of your partner and to some people that is incredibly difficult yeah transition and the great thing is that there's also if you take the perspective of the dan character that kind of ferris bueller cameron relationship here <laughs> where because you know how ferris says this guy uh, poor cameron he's never been with anybody he's an innocent the first person that he meets is gonna he's gonna marry her the first person he sleeps with and she's yeah. gonna treat him like shit and it's that same kind of thing if you have a friend who's a bit weak and you see them get into a relationship with somebody who's very dominant and then you're like oh great i don't have my friend anymore yeah. because now they have to answer to this person that's always yeah. very upsetting when that happens and it's a real world thing yeah it happens it's a real world mundane kind of thing and i think it's really interesting to look at something like that and then to add this weird fiction dimension to it yeah I, I'm absolutely sorry. I, re- I really like it I really like it. And I'm, I can see why people – there are a few things in this that some of the writing I think is a little too overt. And it, it could be way more subtle, but Lovecraft is always that way. It, he's usually pretty overt sure. in his storytelling. I, and I could see people's criticisms of the story. However, I think that this, these things that we're talking about just make this story really stand out from the rest of his work. Absolutely. And, and, and the funny – I must be dense as hell because when I read it the first time – it was very obvious to me that Asnath was taking over his body. Mm-hmm. The fact that she herself is controlled. Yeah. Even though it, I see it now, is very obvious. Oh, I didn't when I first read it. it, was, it was but when I first read it, I didn't get that extra twist. I really no. didn't. Uh, so it, he, he succeeds in that, definitely. Yeah. that it's <laughs> Even though I, I, as I read it now, I go, oh, gosh, she's really telegraphing it. I really didn't get it the first time, and it was no. an extra bit of horror to me when I discovered that it was... You know, man on girl on man kind of thing going yeah. on here, yeah. which is, is super creepy. Exactly. Yeah. Especially the honeymoon. That's what yeah. I really, who Yeesh. knows what happened in Innsmouth. Honeymoon in Innsmouth with. With possessed sorcerer. Oh, gosh. Woman. Yeah. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Well, when when we next uh, talk with y'all, we're going to be getting into chapter four and, and probably blowing through the rest of the story. Chapter four, the real crazy stuff starts to happen. So I'm really looking forward yeah. to getting that part of the story. Some good stuff. We're also going to have some more notes from Michael. I want to thank him again for taking the time to write those down and, and yep. to 
and for writing the Ghostbusters episode. It's so great. And all the, so awesome. Thank you <laughs> so much, All the great man. books that he's written. Um, check out Michael's blog. Again, we'll put it up on our show notes. And he's just an all-around great guy. We're, we're so glad to have him on. We definitely need to mention our sponsor again. That's MiskatonicBooks.com. They've got lots of great things going on over there. Lots of uh, weird fiction stuff you can get, as well as all kinds of uh, ephemera and souvenirs. And don't forget, 10% off with the code HPLP. That's, That's HPLP. Right. It gets you 10% off, and that is going to be going uh, from now until Valentine's Day. You can load up on all of the good stuff for 10% off with that code HPLP. I want to thank our reader, Fred Cross. He did an excellent job. Um, LA's own Fred Cross. He is a great actor uh, of theater and, and TV and movies and the internet and a very funny guy and we're glad to have him on as well. Yeah, great. Great stuff. And uh, I think that's all we have, yeah? Alright, well it's good to be back. Happy 2012 back. everybody and with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com Ow! Hppodcraft.com <laughs> Oh! <laughs>